The rest of us can turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And I was trying to decide this last week, earlier this week, on what I would preach from for a New Year's message, maybe this week and next. And so I was looking back over some of my old sermons and uh, series and trying to think of something that could be applicable for this time. My Siri is going off here. There we go. I don't want to call somebody accidentally. But uh, something that would be applicable to the new year, as I'm aware of the fact that many people are thinking about a new year coming and doing some planning and thinking and, and wanting the new year to be profitable as uh, uh, believers in Christ and everything that that entails. And so I landed on a passage in Matthew chapter 6, which is, of course, right in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And um, it is in verses 19 through 34 is what we'll be looking at this week and next week, Lord willing. And we'll look at verses 19 to 24 first, and then next week, 25 through the end of the chapter. This really has to do with money and possessions and the provision of God and how we are to rightly view those things and how we don't want to be wrongly viewing those things as Jesus is teaching us here. So let's just begin by reading Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, and we'll just read through verse 24 for this week. We'll pray as we usually do, and then we'll jump in. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pause and ask God's blessing on this passage. Father, we need now your help and guidance, wisdom and direction in thinking through this passage and how it applies to each one. We pray for your Spirit's help. I ask that He would strengthen me and gift me to communicate clearly and appropriately, and that He would open all of our eyes and hearts to see and understand how this passage applies to us and what it will mean for us in this year as we seek to glorify You. And we know, because Jesus said it's true, that 
We'll pray to you for these things, and as you answer them, and we bear fruit as your disciples and prove to be your disciples, then that brings you much glory. And so I ask that you would bear fruit in us this year through these words, and we ask this in the name of Jesus, as always, amen. Now, when you become a Christian, the Bible helps you think about yourself and your relationship to God and to this world in certain ways uh, that really are instructional for us. By that, I mean this as an example, okay? When we were studying through Romans chapter 8, we learned that we, through faith, were sons of God, were children of God. And that communicates something about our relationship to Him. Communicates, of course, love and security and safety in the Father's love for us. We're children of God. It also talks about, and maybe we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, the idea that we are members of the body of Christ. So what is a church? The church is, in this metaphor that God gives us in the New Testament, the body of Christ, like a human body. We are members of that body, all interconnected to one another, interdependent on one another. We need to be serving one another and following the head who is Christ, the brains of the operation, so to speak, as He directs us as His people here in this world. We're told that we are sheep in the pasture of the great shepherd, and uh, Jesus Christ, who is the great and good shepherd, who laid down His life for the sheep and then cares for us all the days of our lives, just as we would read about in Psalm 23. And these help us understand who we are, what it means to be a Christian. But one important aspect of this that God gives to us is that of being a disciple of Jesus. One way you must view yourself as a Christian, as a believer, is that you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the concept of being a disciple isn't one we have really in our day and age. But in Jesus' day, a disciple was simply a learner. That's essentially what it means to be a disciple. You're a learner. But it goes a little more deeper than just a disciple under a teacher who is teaching and instructing and information. A disciple in Jesus' day was one who followed very closely their particular teacher or rabbi. They attached themselves to one particular teacher. That teacher taught them and instructed them, but not just for their head, but for their whole life. As a matter of fact, there was a goal in discipleship in Jesus' day. Luke chapter 6, verse 40 records this goal. Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So when we're talking about being a disciple of Jesus, it means that we are being trained by Jesus in order to become like Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is why in a passage that we have quoted often, especially recently, talking about the authority of Jesus, we're looking, we looked at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20, go therefore and make disciples of nations. What are we supposed to be about as a church? Making disciples, these follower learners of Jesus. Then you baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, which is, by the way, 
that very first step of discipleship. If you become a disciple of Jesus, the very first thing you do then is you are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But then in verse 20, you're teaching these disciples to observe all that I have commanded you. It's the nature of discipleship. It's training and teaching us as disciples to be the people of Jesus in this world, to think like Him and to live as He lived among people in this world. We are the disciples of Jesus Christ. We are both discipler and disciplee. We are both being discipled and we are to be discipling others. And the reason I'm introing that is because to understand what the Sermon on the Mount is about, you have to understand discipleship. Because this whole sermon that Jesus delivers was not to the world generally. It wasn't to Jews generally. All of this teaching that you find in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 was uniquely to His disciples. Matter of fact, if you just Scan back to chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. And then everything recorded here was Jesus discipling his disciples. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, then Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 has special relevance to you, doesn't it? He intends for you to know these things and what, according to Matthew 28? To observe them, to put them into practice in your life, to obey His teachings in this world. It is His intention that we read things as we just read earlier in Matthew chapter 6 seeing them come from Jesus to us, helping us shape the way we think as His disciples, and then think about how we live. You know, last week I mentioned the fact that the very first command of Jesus in Matthew's gospel that was to disciples specifically is found in Matthew 4, verse 17. Do you remember that first command? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is something that is an integral aspect of being a disciple of Jesus? Repentance. Word means to change one's mind, the implication that you're going to change your behavior, you're turning about. You're thinking one way, says Jesus, and I need you to turn away from that way of thinking, and I need you to think in an entirely different direction, and I need you to move in that direction. That's what the Sermon on the Mount's about. You're all thinking this way, and when you become my disciple now, you think completely different. Everything changes when you become a disciple. And what you need to do is be repenting. Interestingly enough, that's in the present imperative there. It's a command in the present tense, which communicates this idea. Be repenting. It's part of our life constantly. How often do we come across things that we're not thinking correctly about? We're not thinking like Christ would teach us to think in a certain area of our life, and it's leading us in wrong directions. What does Jesus say so graciously? Now, be repenting of that. You know, that my word has brought that to your attention. Don't despair. Repent. Turn from it. My cross work has paid for all of your sins, and you just turn around and you start going in the right direction. 
because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're to be kingdom people in this world. Kingdom people in this world. That's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The kingdom people of Jesus Christ, which you are, you are in this world as kingdom people, which means the whole sermon is one of calling His people to think differently, to change their minds, and move in a different direction as these kingdom people. So, in one sense, the Sermon on the Mount is Discipleship 101. Interestingly enough, too, the very next command that Jesus issues to His disciples is found also in Matthew chapter 4, and it's, follow me. Repent and follow me. Repent, follow me. You want to summarize the Christian experience from beginning to end until the Lord calls you home? Be repenting and be following me. This is the Christian life. Be repenting, be following me. That's what it means to be a disciple. Now, with that in mind, look again at Matthew 6, and let's let Jesus disciple us on our view of money and possessions. This week, we'll look at verses 19 through 24 and the, really the temptation to become materialistic and to be completely fixated on the things of this world and the accumulation of more of them. Jesus calls them treasures. And to be laying up treasures, He's acknowledging this temptation and teaching us how to think about these things. And next week, is, He's acknowledging the, the temptation to worry about provision, to worry about your daily necessities, to be thinking about 2024 and your finances in such a way that you're anxious in your heart and you're wondering how you're going to pay the bills, you're, you're wondering if the job is going to hold out, you're worried about these things, and He's going to address that because you're not to be doing that either. These two temptations are just part and parcel of living in this fallen world as fallen people, even if we're disciples. On the one hand, to become worldly and materialistic. On the other hand, to be frantically worried about the future and how you're going to pay your bills and, and uh, things like that. And so, he deals with both of them. Let's deal with this issue of materialism, money, and possessions. In verse 24, you have where he is headed. Just I'll begin with that and then end with it. This is where he's headed. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to one and despise the other. What do you mean, Jesus? Listen, you cannot serve God and money. Money is a God that cries out for your service, but you cannot serve God and money. So once again here with discipleship, you've got a choice to make. To whom will you bow the knee, so to speak, as Lord? Will it be Jesus or will it be money and possessions? This is where he's leading, right? The United States has been wealthy beyond comparison in the history of the world and even in the present time. It has been often commented that the poorest people in our country have more at their disposal resources and food and different things that other places couldn't even imagine. Right? It's 
a wealthy place, and therefore it is a breeding ground for materialism. It just feeds that sinful desire of materialism. Dr. Craig Bloomberg from Denver Seminary said this on his commentary in Matthew's Gospel. He said, many perceptive observers have sensed that the greatest danger to Western Christianity is not, as is sometimes alleged, prevailing ideologies such as Marxism, Islam, the New Age movement, or humanism, but rather the all-pervasive materialism of our affluent culture. We try so hard to create heaven on earth, he says, and to throw in Christianity when convenient as another small addition to the so-called good life. Friends, our money can pose a problem for our discipleship, but it can also be a great tool of discipleship. We have the danger of becoming like the church in Laodicea. Revelation 3, 15 to 17, I know your works, said Jesus to them. You are neither cold nor hot. Oh, would you that you were cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Friends, there's a reason that Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount by saying, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is harder, said Jesus, for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And I think Dr. Bloomberg hits it right on the head. The more we have, the more heaven on earth we can create. What's the problem? Why do we need a kingdom to come when this one isn't half bad? It can pose a real problem. 1 Timothy chapter 6, nine, verses 9 and 10, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, listen, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You hear that? It's this craving for treasures on earth, for materialism, for wealth, for financial prosperity that many have walked away from the faith. Do you believe that to be true since it comes from the Bible? Is there not a danger out there surfacing for disciples of Jesus? It's harm, it can be very harmful. So with that in mind and Jesus knowing that, Jesus puts this point into His sermon in order to warn His disciples and to teach us, right? And He says in verses 19 through 21, that we are to be, as disciples, we're not to be storing up uh, our treasures on earth, but that we are to be storing up heavenly treasures. 
He says in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Now, he is not saying that Christian people don't save money or buy things and possessions. We know that because Jesus' teaching isn't only or exclusively the only thing we read in the Bible. Matter of fact, what I'll bring in in a little bit is his instructions to rich people on what to do with their wealth, okay? The Proverbs are, in many places, instructional about how we should be wise stewards of our money. But what he's warning against is the worldly mind that sees only the temporal only the material, only the physical, only the earthly things in front of them. And their mind is one that they are living only for now, and their goal is to accumulate as much as they can. Do you remember the old bumper sticker? I haven't seen it in years, but he who dies with the most toys wins. That's the mindset of the world. It's a way of thinking that the world has that satisfaction and joy and peace and happiness is found in how much a person possesses. One's life could be summarized by how much they have and how much they possess. Jesus says, do not do that. You have to understand the very temporary and fragile nature of these things. He talks about the idea of what would have been common in their day. You, you get these possessions, you store these things up, and they're going to be destroyed by moth and rust, very, very uh, uh, real problems at that time. But how many people, even in our, maybe in our church, had accumulated a large amount of things and lost it overnight. Our material possessions are only temporary. To live one's life for them is foolish. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, Luke chapter 12, verses 15 to 20, He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. And by the way, it's that sin that lies at the heart of materialism. It's the lust of the eyes. It's seeing what you don't have and wanting it. It's that craving. He says, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Now relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now listen to this, because this is what he's getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here is the mind of one who is laying up treasures on earth, listen, to the exclusion of any thought about anything eternal, 
or spiritual or heavenly. Everything in this person's mind is getting what they can get right now out of this world. It's, you know what you are if you're that way? What does Jesus say? It's not me saying it. What does He call you? You're a what? You're a fool if you do that. You see, friends, to the, to the disciple, Jesus teaches us the very temporary nature of our life right now in this world. That it is not our priority and what we're living for, you see. That it's temporary, it's fragile, it can be taken from you at any moment. Your priority then is what? Seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, you see. Notice what Jesus says in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 6, that really this whole idea of covetousness, this whole idea of laying up treasures for ourselves on earth instead of in heaven, is really an issue of the heart. Isn't that what He says? It's a heart issue. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is the question that that leaves in our mind? Where is my heart when it comes to money and possessions? What do I treasure most? Of course, friends, what we've seen even in our study of who Jesus is, is that He is the Lord our God, and we are to love Him with all our heart, mind, and soul. He is the one who is our treasure to the extent that if we had nothing else in this life but Him, that is enough for the Christian. They are pleased with that. He is our ultimate treasure. His kingdom is what drives us. This is why He says in verse 20, lay off for yourselves treasures in heaven, friends. That's where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in steel. It's not fragile. It's not temporary. It's eternal. You're living for your ultimate treasure who is Jesus Christ and His coming kingdom to be a part of all of that. This is what we live for. The pursuit of Jesus and His kingdom is to be the passion of the life of a disciple. That means our life will take on a future-oriented flavor, won't it? We aren't going to be like everyone else, just living for the here and now. We see past that now. We see now Jesus and the kingdom to come. We keep our eyes on Him, and as we do that, our earthly treasures that we have lose their grip on us. We're no longer enslaved to our money and our homes and our cars, our possessions. They lose their grip because Jesus is the one who has the ultimate grip upon our hearts. Friends, this doesn't just apply to our money, does it? It could apply also to our time, our other resources, where we're directing them, our gifts, our talents. Are we laying up in our good works, in our service to others, in our time, in the different things?
we're invested in in our lives? Does it reflect that we're laying up treasures in heaven, that we're future-oriented people? If we look at our bank accounts, do they reflect a disciple of Jesus Christ in the direction of our money? You know, Paul told Timothy this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and, and we need to understand that Jesus saves rich people. And here at Calvary, we love rich people. They're always welcome here to come to our church, right? Tongue-in-cheek, I'm just joking. But God uses money to move the gospel forward. This has been His, this is His plan. And I think, really, when, when people are willing to part with, a, with their money, and I'll it's not really their money, it's God's money entrusted to them. But when they're willing to part with a portion of that to see the advance of the gospel go forward, friends, this is, a, this is glorifying to God. That shows discipleship, by the way. But he says this, they need certain teaching, the rich do, the wealthy do, and I'm applying that to all of the church in the United States. As for the rich in this present age, key term there, this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. You'll hear here the teaching of Jesus, right? But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. In other words, you don't have to have guilt about having possessions. You just have to acknowledge where it comes from. God's given it to you to enjoy, and He could take it away at any time, and you got to be okay with that. But here's discipleship for wealthy people. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, notice this again, Jesus' teaching coming out through Paul, storing up treasure for themselves, listen, as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly light. You see, their richness, their wealthiness is not the good life. It's not the real good life. The real good life is the eternal life of the kingdom that Jesus gives to His people. And He's saying to the rich people, use that wealth and generosity for what really matters. Be laying up treasures in heaven through it and being generous and and ready to share, and being rich in good works. And in doing that, you're laying hold of that which is truly, truly, truly life. Life in Jesus' forever kingdom. The expenditure of our money needs to reflect the truths of these passage. passage. This is why one reason, the thing we put on being a member is that uh, you are to be giving out of your financial resources to the ministry of the church. I rarely talk about giving. Matter of fact, I don't know, I can't remember very often ever talking much about giving, but do you understand what an important part of discipleship this is? That money that God gives you is not your money. Get that out of your head. It is God's money. He entrusts it to you. A portion needs to go to the work of God. And if you're a member of this church, this is the work of God. 
priority for you, and then there can be many other things out there and availability for you to give. You know, some of you may be frustrated with your finances, and you're like the people of Israel who went back to the land, and they stopped working on the temple. Their priorities had gotten wrong. They're working on their own houses. And God said, you're so frustrated because you never have enough money. You, you, you looked for this increase on your, on your uh, 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 products and things, and it came to nothing. It came to so little. You're so frustrated with all of this. Do you want to know why, he says? Because you're too busy building your own paneled houses, so to speak. God doesn't like paneling, by the way. He likes drywall, apparently. I don't know. But you're so busy working on your paneled houses You've neglected the work of God. No wonder there's frustration. God loves a cheerful giver, one who understands the money belongs to God and is willing to give back to see the gospel flow. And it is often the case. When people have that mind, God blesses them with more. They can be entrusted with that money because they're not going to use it exclusively for their own building, their own kingdom here. You can use it for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And very quickly, let me finish these verses up, beginning in verse 22. Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be healthy. He said, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? He's talking about the eye being something that shines light into the rest of you that guides the way you do. If your eye is covetous, if your eye is a servant of money, if your eye is not focused on the Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom, that will affect all the rest of what you do. All be unhealthy. On the other hand, if your eye is healthy, I mean, it's fixated on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's singularly devoted to Him and His kingdom. Then everything else you do will flow out from that with light. We need to be careful how we view the world and the things of the world. We need to guard, just like Jesus said, guard yourself against covetousness. It's such a very real temptation and danger. And then he brings it to this conclusion, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You just can't do it. And we've been talking about Jesus as Lord. You remember the Greek word for Lord? Kurios. It's found right here in master. That's that underlying word. You can't serve the Lord Jesus and money. You can't be his servant. You can't be both and. There must be one or the other. The disciple here is called to make a decision. To whom will they bow their knee? The world bows its knee to the Lord money. And money rules over them like a master over a slave. It directs everything they do. Every decision they make is governed by money. We need to be a people who rule over our money. Remember what the creation mandate was to Adam and Eve? It's the same one we have, is rule over what God has entrusted to you. Have dominion over it. And I believe in a unique way 
men, Christian men, need to rule over the finances of their home. They govern the finances and direct them and making sure they are reflecting kingdom principles. We need to get control over our money. You live in a society that wants you to lose control of your money. It tells you, you need the bigger, better vehicle. You just need it. And by the way, you can afford it because it would only be this much money every month. It's, it's a world that's willing to give you a card that says, you don't have to be content with what you have. You can have whatever you want. You walk in, you give them the card. Guess what? You can walk out with it. You don't even have to pay. Well, maybe every month at 25% interest, but don't worry about that because you make enough money to cover that every month. The more debt that's accumulated, the more the debtor is slave to the lender. It becomes their Lord. Friends, disciples aren't to think that way. And when we slip into those patterns, and probably everyone in this room has slipped into those patterns, including me, it's time to do what? Just repent. Change your way of thinking. Ask God to guide you and give you wisdom. Get back control. Rule over your finances under the lordship of Jesus Christ. When we turn from the way we've been into the way Jesus wants us to do, He helps us do that. He helps His people. He told His disciples that when we pray for something like this, when we see what God wants us to do and we pray for it, then it, it glorifies God to answer that prayer and let us bear fruit as disciples. Even in our views of money and finances, we bring glory to God as His disciples proving to be true disciples. May 2024 be a year in which we all glorify God with our money and possessions. Let's pray. Father, we want to pray to that end now, and we know money is powerful. It can be used for good or selfishness. And I pray that our church would continue to do what it has historically done, and that we would be a church who is very generous and wise with the money that you give to us to use. And even in our uh, private affairs, God, we confess how easy it is to get sucked into the current of the world in this area, and we pray, we repent of it, and we ask for your grace to move forward into true discipleship. In the name of Jesus, amen.